Your source for community. Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Last month, we looked at change and discord a century ago when the decade known as the Roaring Twenties got underway. We saw how unrest changed political life as Ontarians voted into office a government of farmers and workers. That was just a sampler of things to come. Viewing the Roaring Twenties in broad terms, we see four main patterns. Pace, accelerating. Values, shifting. Confrontations, mounting, and influences, switching. Let's look at that fourth one, the foreign or external influences on Canadian affairs. Up to the end of the Great War, external dominance was exerted primarily by Britain. In the 1920s, it shifted to the United States. Many said Canada was ceasing to be a colony of Britain, only to become a colony of the United States instead. Canada did not sever ties with the British Empire. That work was still ahead. Canada continued linked to Britain as a constitutional monarchy. Its king or queen are head of state. Our parliamentary system, patterned on Britain's, but also continued. We'd even remained British subjects until after the Second World War. However, those were more matters of form than content. If you look at substantive matters like capital investment in new businesses, the political issues of the 1920s, cultural innovations with radio and talking movies, advent of civil aviation, rapidly increasing production of motor vehicles, the expanding freedoms and increasing rights of women, prohibition of alcohol, popularity of Afro-American jazz and new style dance music for the Charleston, marginalization of indigenous peoples and other racial and religious minorities like blacks and Jews, and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in Canada, as well as in the United States, you can see the surging force of American influences on Canadians far more than any limp trends rippling out from the United Kingdom. Britons were feudalists in a modernizing era, the epitome of resistance, dragging their class structure and hoary traditions into the 20th century with its empowering new tools of applied science and engineering, women's quest for the right to vote, the rise of organized workers in the British Labour Party. In contrast, 
Americans represented a vanguard of change, dynamic innovators whose social energy and commercial enterprise fitted better with the times. Instead of a pot of tea, Canadians would start the morning with a cup of coffee. People shifted from inherited routines and hollow traditions to the open adventure of new pursuits. It was not an abrupt revolution, but more like a change of orbit, as if we'd rather circle the sun than the moon. Beyond this evolution affecting Canada and the two world powers with which our country was linked, general world conditions were also in play. As the 1920s began, profound changes, which the Great War and Spanish flu pandemic had sparked in the world, began to hit hard. Those twin catastrophes killed millions of people and depleted resources. The war also shook established societies to their foundations, with overthrow of the monarchy in Russia by the communists and breakup of the German, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman empires, huge shifts in global power structures and redrawing of the geopolitical maps of the world. In tandem, the war accelerated development of new technologies from motorized vehicles to aircraft and aerial photography to radio communications and submarine design. Such transformations were rippling through countries everywhere and in Canada most emphatically. Because of how the war had been conducted and the pandemic handled, Canadians acquired a new spirit it was fueled by plenty of discord, but also by fresh determination to be truer to ourselves. As in other countries, people were throwing over many old ways, even while others desperately sought to retain them. That caused the discord. But when farmers and workers won political power in the reins of Ontario's government in the 1919 general election, leaving both Conservatives and Liberals sitting in reduced numbers on the opposition benches, that displayed the new determination. The roar of the 20s blended both agony and elation. It was in this overall context that Canadian thinking and behavior moved from British to American influences. Well, both, of course, had been present since the 1700s, and it was always a matter of achieving dynamic balance, according to the times. So in the 1920s, why and how did this balance shift? The first reason was inescapably the Great War from 1914 to 1918. When warfare broke out, a majority of Canadians felt emotionally connected to the British Empire. The country was bound economically and constitutionally to Britain. As a colony, Canada had been on a trajectory of slowly gaining more self-government. But the war slammed the brakes on that as imperial powers swiftly overrode peacetime pleasantries. Canada's harsh reality was to be part of someone else's overseas empire. 
Canada's governor, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Connaught, a member of the British royal family appointed in London, took a hands-on role in public affairs at Ottawa during the war. Our prime ministers from Sir John A. Macdonald and Sir Wilfrid Laurier to Sir Robert Borden were knighted by the British monarch to keep them in feudal trappings and under the ceremonial weight of British tradition. Important court cases were appealed to and decided in London by a judiciary more mindful of British values and practices and Canadian realities and new world expectations. British Empire preferential trade with lower custom duties between countries of the empire created a common market for trade in commodities and products between the United Kingdom and Canada. You know, for Muskoka hardwoods lumbered in Huntsville, provided butcher chopping blocks in English meat shops and flooring for bowling alley lanes across England. And when, when Britain went to war in South Africa against Dutch settlers in the late 1800s, or again in Europe uh, for 1914, it summoned Canadians, including Muskokans, to go overseas and fight its wars, send food and provide military supplies. When World War I began, Prime Minister Borden confirmed that 25,000 Canadian soldiers would be sent to battle. Three years later, that pledge had been added up by the British to 500,000 soldiers, a half million men, with military conscription for those unwilling to volunteer. It was an unrealistic manpower policy for a lightly populated country, simultaneously striving to produce foodstuffs, munitions, and just keep our country operating. From the high costs and deep wounds inflicting, inflicted upon Canada and Canadians by that war, a definite change in thinking occurred. While resistance to change came from those whose personal and commercial interests were aligned with the established order, a growing number of Canadians, including Prime Minister Robert Borden, understood it was time to loosen the bonds of empire. In the Great War's aftermath, entering the 1920s, there was thus palpable hunger among war radicalized Canadians to detach from Britain, to make the post-war era our post-colonial age as well. The second reason for Canada's reorientation was that Britain lay across a wide ocean. Despite transatlantic steamships, then transatlantic cables for telegraph and telephone, and by the 1920s, early transatlantic air travel, the greater force at play was the physical presence of the United States. Canada's closest neighbor, indeed our only neighbor, abutted us on two borders along our southern boundary where 90% of all Canadians lived within 200 miles of the US and at our Northwest boundary where Alaska nestles hard against Yukon. Many countries crave being close to the USA. 
Canada is the only country in the world with the United States on two borders. Proximity was not only a given, but it mattered, especially north-south. For workers seeking employment, convenient transport of goods, ease of travel by people, for cultural activities, for extension of business activity and commercial operations. Realtors like to say the three most important factors for deciding where you should live are location, location, and location. Where Canada is located is right across the upper half of the North American continent, so conveniently close to the world's largest and most dynamic economy that long before and even after an international boundary was drawn between the two countries, we operated as one. So, as the instinct to gain an essential degree of separation from Britain took hold, Canadians were not in some remote or isolated setting, as were the Australians and New Zealanders, for instance, who are also feeling, feeling the same nationalistic impulses. Instead of being a distant island in the vast Pacific, Canada was physically connected to the USA with only a negligee thin continent-wide border between us. When we return after a brief break, we'll look at two other factors that propelled Canada and Muskokans out of close orbit around Britain and much closer to the United States just a century ago. This is Dr. Shervin. Hello. Dr. Shervin owns a dental practice in Huntsville. Yes, ma'am. But it's not only a dental practice. Dairy Lane Dental plays a major role in our community, supporting organizations that enrich your town like Community Radio, being a member of the Bay Food Crew, and Huntsville Hospital Foundation Business Cares Program. Dr. Shervin and his team at Dairy Lane Dental knows that alongside truly understanding their patients by providing a pleasant dental experience comes a responsibility to take care of our home. This is correct. Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka. Your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine. The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. This installment of Muskoka's Modern History is examining why and how Canadians shifted from British links to American connections during the fabled decade known as the Roaring Twenties. We've already examined two big reasons. The claustrophobic feeling a growing number of Canadians had at being trapped within the structures and demands of Britain's empire, and the all-important proximity of the U.S. to Canada. The third reason American approaches became relatively more appealing was a new spirit of Canadian nationhood. Unlike the instinct to distance ourselves from Britain, which was essentially a negative response, a pulling away 
for survival and national integrity, this new national spirit was positive. The exceptional military accomplishments of Canadians through the war, both on the home front and overseas, gave birth to a more bullish vision of Canada as a unique place of our own. There was genuine pride and resilient confidence. New political parties emerged to bring fresh approaches to public affairs. Political issues themselves began to frame the emerging imperatives of a Canadian society rapidly in transition to a more modern era. If you wanted modern, was there much choice? One poll was monarchical Britain, a feudalistic society stratified by its class structure and land-based bastions of privilege. The other poll, the United States, was, well, first of all, a rare federal country like Canada, a structure for governing that worked well and was derived from the confederacies of various First Nations in North America. Linked to that similarity was how both countries also shared a commonality as American places, as already discussed before the break. Another key factor, especially important for Canadians struggling under the confusion of imported British forms of government, was how the USA had democracy and egalitarian principles enshrined right in its constitution. We, the people, the US Constitution's opening words, convey unequivocally that sovereignty resides in the country's citizens. In contrast, Canada's constitution equivocates and confuses, embracing a dual sovereignty of both the crown and the people. An appealing thing about Americans, it seemed, was their straight talk, clearer purpose, and thoroughgoing democratic political culture. All these magnetic forces aligning in the 1920s further helped pull Canada into orbit around the USA because of the ways this connection enhanced the new nationalism awakening in Canada. Canadian artists, inspired by Tom Thompson and his work in North Muskoka, Algonquin Park, and across the primal Canadian shield, began to paint our landscape with fresh Canadian eyes in bold strokes, dynamic composition, and vibrant colors. The Group of Seven and other artists across Canada in turn began to see and to display on canvas how we ourselves experienced our place on earth, not how those from European schools of art softened it into pastoral scenes. The same desire in Canadian authors generated a literary sharing of authentic national experiences. And Muskoka Chautauqua in the 1920s turned a national spotlight on Canadian writers and their books. No longer content to fill school curriculums and people's minds with published works by British and American authors. So perhaps about now you're asking, how does this new Canadian sense of nationhood 
fit with simultaneously becoming more open to cultural influences from the USA? Valid question. The answer is to repeat that just like Canada, the US is a North American nation. There have been more shared episodes and exploits across our border than have ever occurred between us and European, African, or Asian countries. This is the essence of thick and enduring Canadian-American relations. Occupying the same continent meant sharing, indeed embracing, the commonality of our American experience. Part of this, of course, was how traffic across the Canadian-US border was a two-way flow. Perhaps Canadians are more aware of what is inbound than about who and what goes from our country into the US. But from scholars to singers, architects to New York and Hollywood actors, soldiers and athletes, to economists, inventors, medical researchers, authors and presidential speechwriters, as well as from supplies of minerals, pulp and paper, and many commodities and manufactured goods, the roles Canadians have played in America life is singularly important. The people of Canada and the people of the United States broadly shared an egalitarian nature that was impossible in our relationship with people bred into the rigid social hierarchy of Britain's feudal aristocracy as perpetuated even into modern times. In fact, the cultural and social gulfs widened by those class differences and their institutionalized structures were becoming increasingly alien to most Canadians. British immigrants persisted in living and expressing their dated ways and inborn superiority in our egalitarian new world setting, causing Professor Frank Underhill to tell his students in the 1920s how he longed to see someone from Britain who could travel across Canada with his eyes and ears open and his mouth shut. It became both unpleasant and destructive to the Canadian consciousness to encounter haughty immigrant Brits looking down their noses at the local colonials or hardline British trade unionists militantly fighting their imported class war in Canada's upwardly mobile society, cutting against the grain of Canadian instincts for moderation and compromise. Seen in the long lens of history, more problems plaguing Canada and Canadians sprang from our imposed colonial heritage and its aftermath institutions uh, than those espousing its political culture than were ever generated from the United States. In all, these forces in US society, maturing ever since the 1700s when the country's ancestral British colonists rejected the British crown, reinforced Canadian nationalism, which in the 1920s was itself a protest against British imperialism. Which brings us to the fourth and final reason Canadians in the 1920s embraced the new era's economic realities for a rapidly modernizing society. 
the all-important economic foundations. From the investment of capital to expanding realms of business and commerce, from improving trade to spreading prosperity, Americans took a role Britons were no longer capable of. Demand in the United States for newsprint reflected the buoyant publishing enterprises whose presses consumed miles of paper daily in producing ever larger editions and blockbuster numbers for weekend reading. In 1919, American readers devoured 61 million copies of newspapers. By the end of the decade, that number had climbed from 61 to a staggering 93 million newspapers. In addition, editions uh, doubled in thickness to pages filled with advertisements aimed at their huge readership. All these copies of Americans, America's big city dailies demanded thousands of tons of newsprint every year, most of it arriving from nearby Canada on north-south rail lines. The political leaders of provincial governments, including Ontario's, worked intimately with businessmen on both sides of the border to ensure smooth operation of this lucrative high employment industry. By the end of the Roaring Twenties, more than a third of Canada's pulp and paper industry was owned or controlled by American capital. It was the same with mining's spectacular development in the 1920s on the Canadian Shield. Discovery of gold, silver, nickel, lead, zinc, and copper coincided with advances in mining technologies, airplanes with pontoons, adoption of the rod mill, use of vacuum filters, and improved prospecting, smelting, and refining techniques made the whole business more efficient and highly profitable. In 1921, the total yearly value of production for those six non-ferrous metals stood at $41 million. By the end of the decade, it was 150 million. In the bargain, the number of mining employees in good paying jobs rose from 10,000 to 23,000. Provincial government mining policies from providing hands-off regulation to funding required railways were again shaped as with forestry practices by political leaders who proved generous and helpful to the companies involved, unconcerned about who was investing the capital to turn these dreams into realities. Delivering prosperity was more important than source of foreign investment. By the end of the 1920s, 40% of Canada's mineral production was by American companies. Those generating electricity also found ideal conditions in Canada, from hospitable governments to extensive waterfalls, especially on the Canadian Shield. Electricity was needed for paper mills, for many phases of 1920s mining operations, and to power motors and industrial machinery and burgeoning new industries like automobile manufacturing. During the 20s, the capacity for generating electricity in Canada multiplied fourfold, with 1921's 1.8 million horsepower from hydraulic turbine installations rising to 5.1 million by 1930. Capital invested in the power industry's fixed assets, which enabled all this power to be generated, 
rose from 448 million to 1.1 billion over the decade. Most of it was American money. At war's end, the amount of British money invested in Canada was about the same that it had been in 1914, still flat, but American investments had more than doubled much of it directly invested in some 700 factories, branch plants of US companies. Movement, movement of goods between the two countries was easy because adoption of a single standard gauge for railways enabled CPR rolling stock to be in Texas and trains from the Omaha and Santa Fe or the Chesapeake and Ohio railroads to run through Nova Scotia or Ontario. Also, Movement between the two countries of workers seeking better employment was just about as easy. A key difference in foreign investment was that UK investors liked making portfolio investments by putting their lazy money into non-voting company shares or company-issued debentures and bonds, while US investors instead invested bold money directly into operating subsidiaries and branch plants of American-owned companies. As with diplomacy and politics, so too in investment financing. Britons preferred to operate at a discrete remove and indirectly. Americans up close and hands-on. During the 20s, the industries which grew most impressively, pulp and paper, mining and smelting, hydroelectric power generation, and manufacturing automobiles all depended heavily on non-Canadian investors. In 1922, the United States displaced Great Britain as Canada's principal creditor when American investment exceeded British for the first time. After that, the American advantage continued to widen. By 1930, more than 40% of Canadian mining, smelting, and petroleum would be controlled by Americans and 20% of Canadian industry overall. Professor Underhill, tending to socialist views in the 20s, was not alarmed about American influences. The truth is that we are working out on this continent a new kind of relationship between two peoples such as the world has never seen before, he wrote in Canadian Forum at the end of the 20s. We fail to understand it ourselves because our minds are still dominated by political ideas about nationality, which were imported from Europe. In the year ahead, I'll share more stories with you each month on Hunter's Bay Radio, exploring what it was like when Muskokans embraced the Roaring Twenties. You're in store for a lot of surprises. Our producer for Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, here at Muskoka's community station in Huntsville, is Jacob Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer.